Well, it's great to be here with you this morning, and before we read our text today, uh, if you're new to Gateway, if you're visiting, here at Gateway we usually work our way progressively through a book of the Bible. Uh, We've been working our way through the book of Job, and so uh, when we have a Sunday like today, when we're not in the book of Job, you may wonder, how does the preacher decide what to preach on? Um, now, personally, I, I prefer to work on an assigned text where I'm told, this is your text, go prepare and, and work on this. Uh, in this case, Pastor Rod um, left it to me to discern what to, to bring to you this morning. And the, the Sunday that he asked if I would be available to preach was the Sunday at the beginning of April when our brother Roman from the Ukraine preached. And... At that time, around that same week, um, I had just finished reading through the book of Numbers with my daughter and had been meditating a lot about what the book of Numbers had to say. It's not a book we go to very often. And then, lo and behold, Roman preached from Numbers that same morning. And so that was further drawing my attention to that book. And not only that, the portion of Numbers that I had been meditating on leading up to that point, immediately followed the portion that uh, Brother Roman um, opened up for us in April. And so if you will, I am picking up where our brother left off. Um, And if you are not here, if you go to our website um, or our YouTube channel, I think it was the first Sunday of April, you can uh, listen to that sermon uh, from Numbers as well. And so with that, let us turn our attention to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. Verses 4 through 9. It's a short passage. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. And it reads, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So God, with our Bibles open before us, we come to acknowledge that it is your word, the word of God, which does the work of God by the spirit of God in the people of God. And it is for that that we ask and beseech you to do, that you would, by your spirit, work in us through your word. I ask for unction as I speak for the sake of your name. 
and your glory. I ask that you would be with each hearer to give ears to hear and eyes to see, to see you for who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our proposition this morning is God's righteous justice upon rebels gets transformed into a source of life for those who will look to God for healing. God's righteous justice upon rebels gets transformed into a source of life for those who will look to God for healing. How many of us here this morning have discovered from our own personal experience that old habits die hard? You've tried to change how you do something or stop doing it altogether, but it's just hard. Or for those of you who are parents in the room, how many of you have found yourselves having to repeat yourself more than once to get your child to behave a certain way? How about more than twice? More than thrice? Four times? Five? Six? We've all been there. And as we look to the children of Israel, we see God's dealings with his people whose old habits die hard and who have a hard time learning to trust and obey him. And so there's much to learn about how God deals with his people to this day. And so our first point this morning is the people of Israel rebel yet again. Yet again. The word Rebel means to rise in opposition to an established authority. To rise in opposition to an established authority. But in order to underscore those last two words, yet again, I want us to look together at the cycle of rebellion in the wilderness. There's a cycle that is found in this middle section of the book of Numbers, from Numbers 11 through Numbers 21. And you'll get... A whole lot more out of this morning's sermon if you have your Bible open in front of you as we observe this familiar progression that occurs over and over and over and over again, culminating in our text this morning. And so first we have the people of Israel rebel against the Lord. Then the anger of the Lord breaks out on them in judgment. Then Moses intercedes to the Lord on their behalf. Then the Lord shows mercy. And after he shows mercy, we go back to the beginning. The people of Israel rebel against the Lord. The anger of the Lord breaks out on them in judgment. Moses intercedes to the Lord on their behalf. The Lord shows mercy. And then we go up again and again and again. These accounts of the people of Israel's rebellion here in the book of Numbers are not new. We know that even from the book of Exodus... Back at Sinai, how the people had worshipped a golden calf after they grew tired of waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. And in judgment, it's recorded that 3,000 of them are killed. That time, their rebellion was born out of impatience. They were unable to wait for Moses for 40 days. After spending a year at the foot of Mount Sinai, where God had given Moses the Ten Commandments, We read in Numbers chapter 10 that the people of Israel set off on a three-day journey from Sinai to the wilderness of Paran, 
And here in Numbers 11, we see that the people's rebellion was born out of ingratitude. So we have a list here of various ways in which this rebellion manifests. So with the golden calf, it was impatience. Here, it's ingratitude. They complain in Numbers 11, verse 6, that all they have to eat is this manna. And they start demanding meat and saying that the food in Egypt was better. And so in judgment, God sends them quail, but it is accompanied with a very great plague, and many of the people were killed. And so you have here in Numbers 11, verse 33, it says, While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. The progression continues in chapter 12. This time it is with, it's with Moses' own siblings, his own sister and brother opposing him, and their rebellion is born out of envy. If you think about it, Moses is their baby brother, and while there's no mention of it earlier in the story of their lives, it turns out that big sister and big brother felt a certain way about the supreme authority that their baby brother, if you will, possessed as the one through whom God spoke to his people. And so Miriam is struck with leprosy. Moses cries out in intercession to God to heal her, and she is healed. And then in chapter 13 and 14, and that's the account of the 12 spies that our brother Roman preached to us in April, when 10 of the 12 spies bring a bad report about the promised land and the people rebel, if you remember the title of Roman's sermon, this was a rebellion born out of fear. You'll remember that they grumbled against Moses and Aaron and said to them in the beginning of chapter 14, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. When Joshua and Caleb give their good report and plead with the people not to rebel, the response of the people is to seek to stone them. And at that point, the glory of the Lord appears at the tent of meeting so that the stoning is averted. And then we see the progression again. The Lord is angered by the people's rebellion, and he says to Moses, if you look at chapter 14, verse 11, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. These are not careless words by God. There is no such thing as a careless word by God. These are the people of Israel. These are the children of promise. And yet God is prepared to start over with Moses. To disinherit them. The ones to whom the inheritance had been promised. And start over again. But what comes after the anger of the Lord in the progression? Moses intercedes for the people. He asks God to pardon their iniquity according to the greatness of his steadfast love. The Lord hears the intercession of Moses. He pardons the people according to his request. It says there in verse 20, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But pardon does not mean there are no consequences for the people's rebellion. 
In fact, the consequences could not have been more severe. The 10 spies who brought a bad report were killed by the plague. And all the adults except Joshua and Caleb are condemned to wander in the wilderness and die without seeing the promised land. Listen to the pronouncement in verses 29 and 30. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Then in chapter 16, we find the account of Korah's rebellion. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. Here we find a group of Levites, the tribe from whom the priesthood was selected, the tribe known for their consecration unto service. Here they band together in mutiny against Moses and Aaron, questioning the exclusivity of their leadership of the people. We'll call the root of this rebellion pride. It reminds us of what we saw with Miriam and Aaron just back in chapter 12. And again, we see the anger of the Lord kindled against them, so much so that they are literally swallowed whole by the ground and sent down alive into Sheol, as the text describes in verse 33 of chapter 16. On top of that, fire comes down from the Lord and consumes 250 men. Guess how long it takes until the next rebellion? Less than 24 hours. We're told that on the next day, Verse 41, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. The Lord tells Moses to get away from the people so that he may consume them in a moment. As Moses falls on his face in intercession once again, he sends Aaron to take a censer with fire from the altar and lay incense on it and to begin to make atonement for the people. For the plague had already begun to come among them. And as Aaron did so, he ran with that censer in his hand in the midst of the assembly. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague stopped. Those who died in the plague were 14,700, and that does not include the sons of Korah who were swallowed alive by the ground, and who, or the 250 who were consumed by fire. Picture in your mind's eye Aaron racing into the midst of the congregation of Israel with his censer of fire and incense as the plague of the Lord is spreading and killing thousands of Israelites and him standing as the priest between the dead and the living and the plague ceasing. That's a helpful picture to have in our mind as we approach our text in chapter 21. But before we get to chapter 21, there is one more episode of rebellion in chapter 20 and it is perhaps the saddest one of them all. Sandwiched between the deaths of Miriam and Aaron, we find the account of the rebellion of Moses. And so in a sense, in this chapter 20, we see the death of all three siblings, Miriam, Moses, and Aaron. Even though Moses wouldn't die until later, but that death is triggered, if you will, by the events of chapter 20, uh, in between the deaths of his siblings. Miriam dies in verse 1. And in chapter 2, we have a problem. There's no water. And the reflexive response of the people is to assemble against Moses and Aaron and to quarrel with them. 
Why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Again, Moses and Aaron take it to the Lord and he makes a way. He tells Moses to take his staff and speak to the rock and water will come out. Moses obeys the first part. He takes his staff. But then listen to the sad irony in verse 10. As Moses and Aaron gather the assembly together before the rock, Moses says to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. Moses rebelled. Rebellion born out of unbelief. As the Lord says to Moses and Aaron in verse 12, Because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. This is the same Moses whom the Lord was prepared to start over with in chapter 14. And now as a consequence of his own rebellion, he faces the same consequence as all the people of Israel except Joshua and Caleb. He too will die before seeing or before reaching, he would be allowed to see it from a distance, but before reaching the promised land. And so after these numerous accounts of rebellion, we come to our text in Numbers 21 and see that the people rebel yet again, yet again. Notice in verses 4 and 5 how repetitive this all is. We're in Numbers 21, verses 4 and 5. And the people became impatient. Right? We saw that with the golden calf. They couldn't wait for Moses for 40 days. Impatience. Verse 5. The people speak against God and against Moses. We've seen this in each of these rebellion accounts. Speaking against the God who delivered them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and parted the Red Sea. And against the man that God used to lead them. Verse 5. No food and water. For no water, we have to just turn back a page to chapter 20, which we just saw. When Moses was told to speak to the rock and he struck it. For food, apparently they have food. They're just ungrateful for the kind of food they do have. Right? We saw that in chapter 11 when they said, This manna is all we had and the food in Egypt was better. They are like the child who looks in the fridge or the pantry and says, Mom, Dad, there's nothing to eat. Not because there isn't any food. They just don't see the particular type of food that they want to eat. And so we see the people of Israel rebel yet again. Our next point is the justice and mercy of the Lord yet again. We had the people of Israel rebel yet again. Now we have the justice and the mercy of the Lord yet again, verses 6 through 9. The last time I had the privilege of bringing the word to you here, we were in Psalm 19, and there we said that the just decrees of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And here in verses 6 to 9 of our text, we see that in righteousness, God breaks out upon the people and sends fiery serpents that bit the people of Israel so that many of them died. God's righteous justice towards rebels and sinners. From making them drink water mixed with melted gold from the golden calf to the more than 3,000 men who were killed by the sons of Levi right after that to the plague that followed, not just then, but in the subsequent accounts that we've just seen, 
to leprosy, to being swallowed by the ground alive, to being condemned to wander and die in the wilderness without entering the promised land. We've seen instances of God's judgment from these accounts of rebellion in the wilderness. And now we come to this final one, and it is admittedly a strange one. It is the first time we hear of venomous snakes in the Bible. The last time the, is the people of Israel had interacted with a snake or seen one or heard of one was when God had turned Moses' rod into a snake and Moses picked it up and it turned back into a rod, right, when he went before Pharaoh to, to demonstrate a miracle from God. And then prior to that, the last recorded interaction with a serpent took place where? Way back in the beginning, in the garden. A talking snake with Adam and Eve. And so while these previous interactions with snakes did not result in physical harm that we know of, it is interesting to note that just as sin and death came to mankind through a serpent at the very beginning, here we have serpents being used by God to bring judgment resulting in death. Thankfully, the story doesn't end here. In verse 7, the people come to Moses and they say these three important words. We have sinned. Verse 7, we have sinned. And with the exception of Aaron, who made the same confession in the rebellion account with him and Miriam, when Miriam was uh, struck with leprosy, we haven't seen this response in these other rebellion accounts in Numbers. The response of confession. And oh, how crucial confession is when we are confronted with our sin. What is confession? It is not the same thing as an apology. It is not saying, I am sorry. Rather, it is agreeing with God about our sin, calling it what it is. Notice here that it is specific. Look at me, look with me here to verse 5. What does it say that they had done? It says, the people spoke against God and against Moses in verse 5. And what is their confession in verse 7? We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Right? It is specific. And so this time they ask Moses to intercede for them to the Lord. Previously we've seen Moses of his own volition, of his own initiative, interceding for them without being prompted by their confession. Here they ask him to pray to the Lord that he take away the serpent's from us, and so Moses prayed for the people. One of the songs that we sing from time to time here at Gateway is The Endless Mercy of Our God. I had that in my manuscript before I knew that we would be singing that today. Tim and I did not coordinate on that. The Holy Spirit made that happen. And the endless mercy of our God is what comes to mind here in verses 8 and 9 as the Lord instructs Moses to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. What a great promise. So Moses believed the promise and did as the Lord instructed. He made a serpent out of bronze. He put it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he or she would look at the bronze serpent and would live and not die. The imagery here is very powerful. The very instrument of God's justice that brings death because the wages of sin is death, is here transformed into the very means of obtaining life instead of death. The very instrument of God's justice that brings death 
is here transformed into the very means of obtaining life instead of death. Notice what was required of the snake-bitten people in order to obtain this life. They were simply to look. And what happened? If those who were bitten by the snakes looked, we see in verse 9, the promise was fulfilled and they lived. They went from certain death to miraculous life. Now we've come to the end of our text, but the story doesn't end here. As wonderful as this strange symbol of a bronze serpent was, a means through which God's healing mercy came, the people of Israel found a way to miss the point. After everyone who had been bitten by the snake, snakes had looked at the bronze serpent on a pole and been healed, the people of Israel held on to the bronze serpent. They carried it with them all the way into the promised land. They even gave it a name, Nehushtan, Nehushtan, I think, and began to worship it by making offerings to it. It took one of the godliest kings in the history of Judah to put that to a stop. It was a tragic case of elevating the means of God's grace and mercy above the giver of grace. If you're looking at numbers and wondering where this continuation is, you have to turn all the way ahead to 2 Kings chapter 18, which I encourage you to do. 2 Kings 18, I'll read verses 1 through 6. 2 Kings 18, 1 through 6, it says, In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. Unlike Moses' partial obedience here, Hezekiah is described as having kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And to underscore how godly this king is, He's being described here as there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. To underscore his godliness is the act of having this bronze serpent destroyed because it had become an idol, something that the, the people of Israel were literally bringing offerings to. And the question for you and I this morning is, what means of God's grace are you elevating above the giver of grace today? Back in Kenya, it is sadly quite common for people to bring offerings to the man of God whom they associate with certain deliverance or healing or blessing that they have either received or expect to receive. And they asked for a prayer from the man of God at some point for healing. The healing came, and so now they elevate this man above the great physician who alone can heal. Perhaps they sought prayer at some point 
during a time of financial difficulty. The finances came, and now they elevate this man of God above the giver of every good gift. Now, that may not be the case for you or I necessarily this morning here today, but the question still stands. What means of God's grace, what trophy of God's mercy are you elevating above the giver of grace? You and I are no less prone to idolatry than the children of Israel were. And we need only look at our bank statements and our calendars to find out what it is that we truly worship. How we spend our money, how we spend our time. Quickest way to find out where our allegiances are. Now let's move on to not the improper understanding of this strange symbol, but the proper understanding of this symbol. And for that, we have the benefit of the New Testament and the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, and let's turn there. We will spend the bulk of our remaining time there. This is the well-known passage in which a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus came to see Jesus by night. And Jesus tells him that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus struggles to understand what Jesus is saying and asks how a man can re-enter his mother's womb and be born. Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus answers him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? And all the way up to verse 12, John 3 verse 12, Jesus engages Nicodemus on the subject of the new birth as one teacher would to another teacher, rabbi to rabbi. But thankfully for Nicodemus, Jesus does not leave him hanging. He doesn't tell Nicodemus to go and figure it out. Rather, in verse 13, he switches to speak about himself as the one who came from heaven and is therefore qualified to speak of the heavenly things that he refers to here in verse 12. He came from heaven, and in verse 14, he explains to Nicodemus what he came from heaven to earth to do. And so, follow as I read verses 14 and 15 of John 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As a teacher of Israel, the account of Moses and the bronze serpent is one that would have been very familiar to, to Nicodemus as a rabbi, as a teacher. In explaining to Nicodemus what he came from heaven to earth to do, Jesus compares himself, of all the things he could compare himself to, he compares himself to that bronze serpent that Moses lifted up. Jesus is saying that he came for snake-bitten people. Ever since the fall, when Adam and Eve were deceived by the original serpent, every human being has the deadly poison of sin coursing through our veins. In Adam, all die. Romans 5 verse 12 says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Jesus came for sinners. He came for you and he came for me. We who left to ourselves 
will surely die as a result of our sin, just as the people of Israel in Numbers 21 who were bitten by the snakes were surely dying. Just as the Lord sent snakes into the Israelite camp because of their rebellion, which we saw, likewise the wrath of God on sinful man continues because of our rebellion against him. That's the bad news. In speaking to Nicodemus and to us about the new birth, Jesus likens himself to the bronze serpent. A strange choice, but in the words of John Piper, the means God chooses to rescue the people from his own curse is a picture of the curse itself. How does he rescue them from venomous serpents? Creates a picture of the serpent. And what does that mean for us? All snake-bitten sinners have to do today in order to be healed of the venom of sin, to be rescued from certain death, is to look upon the provision of God hanging on a pole in the person of Christ who was made a curse for us. Is that not what Galatians 3.13 says? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ became sin for us. We just sang that a few minutes ago. Took the blame. Bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Again, Tim and I did not coordinate on that song either. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. I don't know of a verse that we quote from more frequently here at Gateway than 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We quoted from Romans 5 earlier, in verse 12, we come down to verse 17 of Romans 5. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In verse 12, in Adam all die. In verse 17, just as death came through that one man, much more. Grace, the free gift of righteousness, comes through one man, Jesus Christ. As we said in our proposition at the beginning, God's righteous justice upon rebels gets transformed into a source of life for those who will look to God for healing. That's the good news. If you have not experienced the new birth, and you're here this morning, can I urge you to look to Christ? Perhaps you've heard the conversion testimony of 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher in England. You may have heard that it was the invitation, this invitation to which he responded and was converted. In January of 1850, at the age of 15, he was caught in a snowstorm on his way to church. And so he turned down a side street and walked into a small Methodist chapel to get out of the snowstorm. On that Sunday, as is the case with us here this morning, the regular preacher was not preaching. But there was a layman, I believe it was, uh, in the church that day. Perhaps the preacher had been held back by the snowstorm, and he stepped forward, and he turned the attention of the congregation, which was no more than 15 people that morning, likely owing to the weather, to Isaiah 45, 22. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. That verse says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And after about 10 minutes, in that small chapel, with that small congregation, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, age of 15, seated at the back. The preacher fixed his eyes on Spurgeon and spoke to him directly. Said, young man, you look very miserable. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Not a very complex sermon. Spurgeon would later write in his autobiography about that moment, and Spurgeon writes, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. And so to you I say, acknowledge that you are in rebellion to God. We put up a list earlier. The rebellion could be born out of Ingratitude, it could be born out of envy, it could be born out of fear, pride, unbelief, or a combination of these. The poison that is sin is coursing through your veins and will lead you to certain death. It's the promise of Scripture, Romans 6, 23. Death that you deserve. But over against this bad news 
is the gospel, the good news that Jesus, who is the Christ, came from heaven to become sin, to become a curse. He was lifted up on a tree, just as that bronze serpent was, so that by looking to him through the eyes of faith that only he can give you, you will pass from death to life. Looking is an interesting thing. It sounds trivial when I say look and you just think look, but have you ever been in a pitch black place? Far away from the city lights, middle of the night, new moon, so there's no moonlight, pitch black, and tried to look, right? Try as you might, right? Eyes wide open, look. You don't see unless there's light, right? And so here the call is to look, and yet it's the light of Christ that allows us to see him for who he is. And so we come with eyes of faith, casting our full trust on him. And in doing so, for seeing him as he is, which can only be wrought by his spirit, we pass from death to life. You might be here this morning and you are born again. You have experienced this new birth and you have been delivered from death to life. You've been delivered from the penalty of sin, if you will, because God's wrath has been completely satisfied as it was laid on Christ. And yet, you are still being delivered from the power of sin for as long as you remain in this broken world. We started off this morning by saying that old habits die hard. As you fight to kill the sin that so easily besets you or entangles you, the invitation is the same. Look to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. That songwriter, in penning these words, I don't know if this is the text he had in mind, but it hearkens to Hebrews 12. If you'd turn with me to Hebrews 12, just those first two verses of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, coming on the heels of what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. It begins by saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. And what does it mean to lay aside every weight? Sin, which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And there's that word again, looking looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
in our quest to fight our sin, to kill our sin, to mortify it, as the Puritans would say. This sin that does so easily beset us or entangle us. The solution is the same. It's to look to Him. How do we become more like Jesus? You're saying, this is all well and good, but I, I want you to get more specific. How exactly does this happen? 2 Corinthians 3.18 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding, that's a more encompassing word than looking, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How do we become more like Jesus? How does this transformation come about? As we behold Him, we are transformed. Need more transformation? Try more beholding. Tired of fighting against your sin? Look to Jesus. Behold Him for who He is. He has revealed Himself in the pages of Scripture. We are so blessed to have copies, multiple copies of the Scripture with us in the language that we understand. Many do not. It is not for lack of God's Word or availability of God's Word that we struggle in our fight against sin. And yet, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 concludes, it says, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so just as It was with Nicodemus in John 3, where Jesus says that the new birth comes by the Spirit of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So here, our transformation comes likewise by the Spirit as we look to Christ, as we behold Him. And one day, our faith will be turned to sight. We shall behold Him face to face, and then we will have been delivered not just from the penalty of sin, not just from the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin as that great serpent who has already been dealt a death blow is finally vanquished. So Spirit, come. Come and blow. Grant eyes of faith for us to see you right now, whether for the very first time in conversion or for the 1,000th time as we do battle with the sin that does so easily entangle us in our Christian race. Help us to look unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, was made a curse for sin, him who knew no sin, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, in power today, having been raised victorious over death, that we, by faith, might be declared righteous before you, O holy God. Help us to look to you and run with endurance the race that is set before us until we see you face to face. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.